Texas A&M should be looking for some new lawyers because <laughs> I think their current lawyer is Lionel Hutz. <laughs> there's the truth and then the truth. But there's the truth and the truth. You know, Elliot, it's a good thing we're recording this podcast on U.S. Thanksgiving and the NHL is dark because we can all use a break, uh, all use a breath, try to regroup because so far the season has been drama filled. Welcome to 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented as always by the GMC Sierra HD, Merrick Friedman and Old Dom. Yes, we're determined to make that stick. Before we get to the situation in Edmonton, before we talk about Patrick Kane, before we talk about Columbus, before we talk about the big cat in Tampa, before we talk about John Klingberg in Toronto, to the best of your knowledge, and information seems really scarce, what is happening with Corey Perry in Chicago? You know, Jeff, we're taping this in the middle of the afternoon on Thursday, and this is one of those situations where you're almost afraid to say anything because you're worried what's going to come after you recorded the pod. What we know is this. Corey Perry was supposed to play on Wednesday night against Columbus. Nikita Zaitsev was the extra player at skate on Wednesday morning, and he took the bag skate. And when you take that skate, you're not supposed to play. And all of a sudden, Zaitsev in, Perry out. They don't have any extra forwards. And there's a, there's a big mystery uh, going on here about what's happening. I, you know, I, I think the first thing everybody thinks about when this is, is there a trade? Not sensing that right now could always change, but I'm not sensing that right now. So we'll just have to see how it plays out. I mean, look, the way that the Blackhawks are handling this, it's obvious there's something, but I just think it's wildly irresponsible to guess. We'll see how this plays out. Um, this story continues. Uh, the Blackhawks next in action Friday against the Toronto Maple Leafs. We're going to get to the Maple Leafs and John Klingberg here in a couple of moments. In the meantime, uh, let's rewind to Wednesday because there were 14 games on the schedule and about 14,000 stories coming out of them. And one of the big ones, and maybe the biggest one, is the continuing spiral of the Edmonton Oilers. 6-3 uh, was the final score, but if I really want to pile on, I'll mention that Michael Bunting hit a post and Sebastian Ajo had a goal taken away on uh, Blue Line Review. But I'm not going to do that. So 6-3 is the final. It seemed as if the game was cursed for Edmonton in the beginning, in the uh, pregame Elliott with, uh, with Stuart Skinner sliding into Carolina's zone. Uh, and then Darnell Nurse getting a puck in the face uh, in warm-up, wasn't wearing a helmet, caught one, looked like right between the lookers, and was all gauzed up to start the game, although he missed the first couple of minutes. Look, this one was over pretty quick. Mm -hmm. uh, two quick goals, three quick goals, four quick goals, the exit of Stuart Skinner. Uh, Zach Hyman kind of gave the Oilers a little brief glimpse of light as they tried to claw back throughout the game. But this one... This one was ugly early, and then the final was ugly. 6-3 is the final. I don't even know what to ask at this point because it all does feel like piling on, but things have come unraveled in Edmonton, and where do we go now? I, I honestly believe that the Oilers are going to try to weather this as much as they can without doing anything they're going to regret for generations. And, you know, for example, when this Perry thing happened on Thursday afternoon... I had a bunch of people sending me notes 
You think it's Perry and Mrazek to the Oilers? When Auntie Ranta left the game after the first period on Wednesday night, people were texting me, do you think he's going to be traded to the Oilers? Show and up in the I third. was like, what? You think he's going to show up for the third period? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's it's crazy around Edmonton now. A whisper on one end of the league is connected to, is this going to be what the Oilers do to facilitate a trade? A whisper right now in Australia turns into, how does this affect the Oilers and their trade for a goalie? I mean, look, Jeff, watching that game, do you want Skinner to make a save? Yeah, you want him to make a save, but some of those goals were ridiculous. Like, they weren't all on him. Their their coverage still, you know, you take a look at this, and there's not a lot of practice time right now. It's Tampa, day off. Florida, day off. Carolina, day off. Washington, Friday yeah. afternoon. You look at it all, but it's it's very obvious that they haven't, fix the problems that ailed them before the coaching change. They're still really leaky. Teams are still getting great chances against them. You know, Carolina forechecks a certain way and Edmonton couldn't handle it. And that, for example, led to one of the goals, the one where people were all over CC online and social. But the bottom line is they were not prepared to handle what Carolina threw at them on that particular shift. Uh, they're, they're, they're four checks. So, you know, I look at them and I see a lot of things that still need to be fixed. And I see a team that is determined not to make a really bad trade. Jeff, there's something I wrote about in the notes on Thursday night that I want to discuss with you further. And one of the things I think that the Oilers are going to have to deal with is this narrative that because McDavid's former agent is now the president of hockey operations and his former junior coach is now the head coach, that McDavid is flexing his muscle and growing his power in the organization. I don't think he likes that one bit. I don't think he now, and I will say this, I don't presume to speak for Connor McDavid, uh, he is capable of talking for himself. But one of the things I am hearing, and and my experiences with him, I believe this, is that he resents the idea that he is flexing his muscle over the team and making organizational decisions. And the the comparison that I made in the notes is Matt Sundin, who just was all over Sweden with the Maple Leafs. And Matt Sundin was a guy who absolutely hated the idea. Like, if you ever went to him and said, why don't you go out and get this player? Um, he would get upset at that. He, I saw him snap at a reporter once who said on the radio that Leaf players had told him that they didn't think Jonas Hoagland should be playing with Sundin. And, and someone reminded me that there was another time when Sundin's line mates were uh, Nick Antropov and Alexei Ponikarovsky that once a reporter went up to him and said, you know, why don't you ask for other wingers? And he got mad at, at that reporter. He would get really upset about stuff like that. He believed his job was to play. And Jeff, you know, in our business, not only in sports, but in media, there are people who like to wield power over who gets hired or who appears on air with them. 
I don't think McDavid is like that. I don't think he was behind Jay Woodcroft's dismissal, even though he was consulted about what he thought was going wrong. I don't think you, you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, Jeff, but I don't think for a second that Connor McDavid said, we need to fire the coach and bring in my junior coach. And I just think that this is something the others are going to have to deal with because I think that McDavid hates that people would think he's like that. You know what I think, Elliot? What do you think? I think I think if Jeff Jackson took over the Los Angeles Kings or the New York Islanders or the Minnesota Wild or the Florida Panthers or pick a team, doesn't matter. Do you know who I think he would try to install as head coach? Who dad? Chris Knobloch. I don't think that has anything to do with Connor McDavid. That just has to do with Jeff Jackson. I agree with you. I've said that, and I agree with you a thousand percent. How many times have we said on this podcast that when Jeff Jackson was an agent, he would talk about Chris Knobloch? I remember at the Memorial Cup in Windsor specifically. I remember having a conversation with Jeff Jackson about Chris Knobloch, how this guy is going to be an NHL coach one day. Like That's how far back this goes. You know what I don't believe about that story? What's that? That Jeff Jackson would willingly have a conversation <laughs> with you. Oh, if you only knew, Elliot, if you only knew. Um, that's funny. That was the uh, that was the Memorial Cup where the Windsor Spitfires, Rocky Thompson's Windsor Spitfires, upset Chris Knobloch's uh, Erie Otters. And I can still remember, one of my vivid memories of that Memorial Cup, I remember... I got there, I was working with Colby Armstrong, and we got there early, and the Seattle Thunderbirds were skating. And so the media relations director said, who do you want to talk to after the skate? And we were like, oh, we want to talk to Barzell. And we want to talk about Ethan Bear, et cetera. We want to talk about to talk to Matthew Barzell. And so we got down there, and when the minute that Barzell saw Colby Armstrong, you could tell like his eyes got really wide, and he put up with a couple of our questions. And after about two or three, he just said, essentially, can I talk to you about Sidney Crosby now? And then like, he just like grilled Colby Armstrong about Sidney Crosby because it was his favorite player. And what was it like, what it was like skating when playing with, with Sidney Crosby. Those are one of my enduring. It's a good stories. Honestly, Fridge, you would have loved it because he got like so excited. Like, wow, I get to talk to someone who played with Sidney Crosby. Like that's what Matthew Barzell was interested in. He put up with my goofy questions and Colby's goofy questions. And then he just started to, uh, and then he just started to uh, grill him about Sidney Crosby. No, but I, I think that you know wherever Jeff Jackson was going to end up once he made that decision, um, that he was no longer um, going to work uh, as an agent with Wasserman, and he'd be in, he'd be interested in running a hockey team. I think Chris Doblock would have gone with him, or that's the that's the coach that he would have taken with him. I don't think it has anything to do with Connor McDavid. And you could say, hang on a second here, like it's obvious, it's right out in the open. But the thing is, optically, it looks like that. Yes. Optically, it in looks the like hockey that. sphere, in the hockey sphere where everything is always correct and accurate, there is this growing belief. And, and you know what? Like, like I, I, in, on some level, you can understand it, right? Because you look at it, you say, Jeff Jackson, ex agent, Chris Knobloch, ex coach, they're, they're trying to make him happy. So, like, I get it. Like, it's a lot. I've seen people convicted of criminal offenses on a lot less. But I, I look at this and I say, I know why everyone thinks it, but it's wrong. 
And it's wrong to the point where the Oilers are going to have to do what they can to smash it because they know how much that's going to make McDavid upset. I think he he wants to play. He wants to win. It already is bad enough right now. He's happy to take the blame on himself. Um, he will always accept responsibility for things not going as well as they could. But I think where the line is with him is people saying he's remaking this team in his image. He doesn't want that. Let me circle back to this idea of weathering the storm and not making a panic move and not getting rushed into making a quote-unquote bad trade. Um, the word bad is doing a lot of lifting um, in a lot of these conversations about Edmondson as I, as I find it because there's, there's two kinds of bad when it comes to a trade. There's bad right now and there's bad long-term. And what I wonder about is are the Oilers now at a place, and if not, when? Because I would have to imagine if this continues, it'd have to get to this place. Are they at a place where they'll make a move that is bad long-term, but good right now? No. Then what no. are they doing? Is, is, is one of the questions then that people would ask. Because this is Leon and Connor on the clock. Well, this is the thing, and, and this is important. This is, this is the kind of the biggest thing that they have to weigh here is because now it's starting to go to like, like I watch a lot of the stuff online and now you have Oilers fans saying, I don't care what we have to give up. We just have to do it. We have to do something. That is the danger zone. That is the desperation zone. Jeff, I have been in the desperation zone, and it is not a pretty place. <laughs> at 1.59 a.m. on a Friday night at the Seeps in London. <laughs> you said it, not me. Look, you know, we talked about this on a radio show. One of our producers and one of our on-air people, and as I say again, it's the worst producer and the worst on-air person at Sportsnet, so people can decide who those are. They have a bet now. I called it the Christmas party. It was the Sportsnet 25th anniversary party. I was corrected. 90 points to make the playoffs in the West. Now, as we sit here and we do the podcast, the cutoff in the wild card is a 500 points percentage. According to multiple sources, a 500 points percentage in an 82 game season <laughs> is 82 Correct. points. I have a hard time believing that will stand. And, uh, yeah, Edmonton is at 306 heading into Friday's game in Washington. Like they even to get to 82, they've got a lot of work to do. But I, one thing I think the Oilers feel is, like, number one, and I really do believe this, their plan was to send Campbell down, hope he gets his game going, and then bring him back, right? And he started off very poorly. He got a shutout this week against Henderson. But that was their goal. So I think part of them are like, nobody's running away with this. Um, we could get hot with these two guys, 
and we could still make the playoffs. St. Louis did it. Florida did it. You plead to the patron saints of playoff miracles past. The problem is, is that they're playing so poorly. It's not just goaltending that has to get better. It's their whole game that has to get better. But because the rest of the conference isn't exactly pulling away from them, you have this belief you can do it. But I I think right now, what you have to be thinking is, you have to be weighing the long-term decisions. Ken Holland's in the final year of his deal Whoever's going to be the GM next year, whether it's going to be Dave Gagne or Mark Hunter or someone else, um, you have to start to think, okay, maybe we'll just hold, we'll play our hand, we'll see how this unfolds the rest of the year, and then we'll make our decisions. But, you know, for one, for something a GM pointed out to me on, on Thursday was... Now, if you're trading a first rounder, it could be a lottery pick. Mm-hmm. And so, and not only could it be a lottery pick, but if you, but then you come into the situation where you're saying like, okay, let's say we have to top five protected this year. Well, then you have to leave it open in the future. And all of a sudden you've got a question about where you're going. You think you know, but you don't know. And how much protection can you put onto it in the future that it doesn't bite you? So I look at it now, Jeff. I understand why people say you've got to make a move to save your season and they're not wrong. But again, you have to have a line of what is acceptable. If your move is like a Sam Montembeau or a Caden Primo or say a Peter Morazic or something like that, you're doing it but you're not doing it at a cost where, well, I want you to take this contract too and a first rounder is going to be part of it. Like a buyout for Jack Campbell is $10 million. What do you think that cost is in terms of draft capital? I don't think you should pay that right now unless someone gives you an unbelievably good deal. Here's another question to consider. When we say long-term, with Edmonton. Edmonton needs to also consider the long-term ramifications. What does long-term mean in Edmonton right now? Does it mean the end of Leon's contract? Does it mean the end of Connor's contract? What does long-term mean in Edmonton? That's a good question. I think long-term means what do you think these players are thinking? That's what long-term is. So then it's it's the Leon and, and, and McDavid contracts. That, 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 that's, that's, as, that's as far out as you're thinking. I think the other thing too is if I was in charge and I had McDavid and Dreisaitl, I would not be giving up on my season. I would believe, in, especially with the way the West has gone this year, again, it looks like a low cutoff for points, lower than normal. I would say to them, guys, I'm not waving the white flag. I may not help you too much, because I can't make a dumb trade, but I'm not waving the white flag. You're going to have the runway you need to show you can save this. That's what I would do. Maybe you get them a little bit of help and goal, but again, I'm not doing anything crazy. But I'd look at them and say, guys, you want to prove that you can still save it? I'm not selling. 
go do it. Because then you put the onus on, because again, Jeff, a, a, a lot of this is they got to play better. We're all sitting here and blaming the goaltending. And yeah, that's true to some degree, but they are playing terribly. You, you can say to them, if you really believe that we can rescue this, you guys got to go out and do it. The other thing too that makes me nervous about the way the Oilers are this year is that there have been times you thought they were going to pull themselves out of it. After the Heritage Classic, you thought they were going to pull themselves out of it. After they won three in a row, you thought they'd pulled themselves out of it. That was last week. And now they're back in it again. That That's, you know, I have to say that that's one of the things that actually concerns me the most about them is that they seem really fragile. You, you know, like, what, like Colorado, they're going through a lot right now, a lot of injuries and things. They are not fragile. They are unfragile. But they've also won the cup. They've also, they've Ve- also been there. Like there's a there's a confidence yeah. in Colorado uh, that does not exist in Edmonton right now. Vegas is not fragile. And maybe that comes with winning the Stanley Cup. But I don't think like like Florida, they're not fragile. No. Boston, no. Boston, <laughs> they are not fragile. Nope. And there's a, there's a fragility to the Oilers that honestly I'm very surprised to see. Very surprised to see. Like watching that game the other night against Carolina, Carolina, when they saw the weakness early, they were like a dog that's, on a bone. That's they that's Rod Brindamore's team, man. That that four check. Yeah, that he four saw check it and they saw it. Is they are so miserable to play against. That is such a, we talked about this last podcast, previous podcast. They are so tough to play against. Because they are all over you. It's a it's 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 got to be frustrating. And when there's a drip of blood in the water, forget it. Um, okay, let's park Edmondson. We talk so much about Edmondson. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Patrick Line scores for the Columbus yes. Blue Jackets. Zach Wierenski has yeah. a good game. Adam Fantilli has a good game. Columbus yep. wins. The losing streak is over. They beat the Chicago Blackhawks. We've already talked about the, the Corey Perry Chicago situation. Your thoughts on the game against Chicago on Wednesday. Now, Line scores the seven to one goal. Okay. So it's not like the three to two goal that went, yeah. whatever. I get it. Call it an empty calorie goal or whatever. He needed that one. What were your takeaways from Columbus on Wednesday? So, one of the first sports books I ever read was like a pamphlet like thing. On Bobby Clark. Oh. So uh, so I was like seven or eight years old at the time. Did so this is like Flint 1977. Did it mention yes, Flynn Yes, it, it definitely okay. mentioned Flynn Okay. It definitely mentioned Flynn Flon. And, you know, Bobby Clark, I think, had been MVP of the league three times already by that point. And the Flyers had won two Stanley Cups, and, and he was a hell of a player. And there was a story in the book I always remembered. Bill Flett, the cowboy was struggling for the Flyers. And Clark said, put him with me. I'll see if I can snap him out of it. And Flett scored 43 goals. So I think about that all the time. Like, who's a guy you put someone with so they can feel better? 
you you wondered the other day you were worried about Adam Fantilli. I am not worried about that guy. Hang on, at hang all. on. Park that for one second. Let me describe that. Let me color that a little bit. Yeah, I'm just worried about having a young player, a rookie player, in a miserable situation in his first year in the NHL. That is a generic statement that is true of any organization. How many times have you seen a team say, "You know what? It's not healthy to have our kids here yet. We need to shovel out." I guess I'm going to use a Brian Burke analogy here. We need to shovel out the barn before we're ready to show the horse. That was my concern about Adam Fantilli. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not worried about him. No more shoveling is necessary. The kid is ready. <laughs> oh, listen. The only shoveling, <laughs> the only shoveling is going to come after this podcast. The only shoveling is on this podcast. Never mind. No, listen. I I think listen. If I first saw Fantilli when he, I'm going to I'm going to turn into that guy. I first saw him when he when he played with the uh, the Toronto Red Wings in the GTHL, and he was head and shoulders above everybody, and he was playing against that Don Mills team that had Shane Wright and. Brant Clark and Brennan Othman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He almost single-handedly beat one of the best minor hockey teams the GTHL has ever produced. And he's a level-headed guy, too. And you've talked to him. I've talked to him. Lovely family, great kid, head on his shoulders, brave, um, all of it. So I don't worry about him from that point of view. My only concern was young kids around negative cultures early in their career. That's all. That was my only point. Yeah, I, no, I totally understand. I, I, I like the fact that I forced you to go into this passionate defense of yourself, <laughs> but I, I, I totally get where you were coming from. The point I'm making is I think it's really instructive that after Patrick Line gets benched and he needs to get going, who, do, who does he get put with? So he's now, the new, he, hang on. So he, he, he's the new Panarin is what you're saying. You got someone that's struggling, put him with Panarin, or in your case... Uh, so you call you're comparing Patrick Line to Bill Flett. I think that's an interesting uh, comparison. I don't know if anybody would have made that. I have to say this is new and unique. That's the first time that's first time that's ever that comparison's ever been made. Yes. So you know what? <laughs> that's true. That is the first time that one has ever been made for sure, and probably the last. Anyway, it was a good night for Columbus. Waranski hadn't, you know, he'd been really struggling too. Big night. You know, the other thing is I looked it up. Um, Fantilli and, and Line hadn't played a ton. I think they only played 30 minutes before last night. Natural stat trick, I'll credit. And the numbers weren't great. They had good numbers last night. It's tough to be in Columbus right now. I, I get it. It's It's been not a lot of fun. The one thing I would like to say, if there was any doubt that they really, really lucked out by having Adam Fantilli drop on their laps... I think that's over. I, I think the kid is just such a stud. And watching him Wednesday night was another example. I, I think he's a, he's a great player for them, and he's going to be a great player for them uh, for a long time. Um, anyway, you know, I, I think this with Columbus, look, they had a great night. I'm, I, they needed it. Their fans needed it. That's the kind of performance you have to have at home. Make your fans feel good. You know, Mike Priest, their president, was at practice on Tuesday, I think it was. Um, he doesn't do that very often. Whenever he shows up at practice, um, it's, I don't know if ominous is the right word, but people notice. Um, you know, I think here, you know, I listened to a lot of John Davidson's comments the last couple of days, read them. He talked a lot about their veterans and... I don't think he's wrong. Like some of their kids have played really well. 
I just wonder if this is going to end with conversations about where are we going here and do our veterans want changes of scenery and what does that mean? And I'm not going to name names because I think that's a dangerous thing to do, but we've both been around this a long time. You can talk to people who've been in the league a long time and eventually you get to a conversation is, do you want something different? And I don't know that that's happened yet, but you could see where it would go on this path to do it. Okay, let me um, let me circle back to Chicago here quickly because we've talked about Corey Perry and they were on the other end of that rink on Wednesday in that uh, in that game against the Blue Jackets, and that is Chicago. Um, the other story around Chicago is the end of the season surgery, knee surgery for Taylor Hall. Do you think, considering that opens up even more cap space, and they still have eight open contracts to get to their 50, that they could play third party here in advance of trade deadline? I, I think they certainly could if they wanted to. But, you know, one of the things that they have talked about was they don't want to eat contracts that much anymore. They, they did a lot of it and they reached a point where they didn't really want to do it again. Now, maybe that changes. Maybe you're offered something that makes you readjust your thinking. But the last time I spoke to them, that's kind of where they were. Uh, the other thing I, I do wonder now too, Jeff, with the Blackhawks is, you know, they lost Taylor Hall and you wish him the best. Um, he's going to need surgery. I just wonder if they're going to have to go out and get guys who can play. Just serviceable NHLers to surround Bedard. Obviously, you're not going to give up a huge price for them. Uh, Why would you? Unless it's somebody you can keep for a long time. But you need bodies. You have to put Bedard in a position where, I mean, it's already all on him to begin with in a lot of ways, but you have to help him a little bit. Those players exist, and that could help those teams out by freeing up cap space. And, and and you say, look, like we'll we're interested in this guy, but you have to, inst- and we'll give you a later pick, but you have to give us a pick too. Like you can still flex your muscles that way. To me, there's an honest hockey reason now why Chicago could do that, and it's not just a dump; it's it's accumulating picks and getting yourself some players who just make life a little bit easier for everybody there. Patrick Kane, uh, I would imagine we are pretty close here to a decision um, from the future Hall of Famer. Uh, Any team specifically you've had a chin scratch about lately? I, I give Kane a lot of credit here, grudging credit, I would say. He has not made this uh, easy on a lot of us. Um <laughs> And anytime I'm in a situation like this, I wonder what I'm missing. Because to me, I, I think, I, I definitely believe I'm missing things here. Number one, I think he ultimately wants to win. Number two, I think he wants... The people I've spoken to about this, they believe his preference is to stay somewhere for more than a year. Is I think he's been asked if he's willing to bend that and maybe he does, but they believe the preference is 
he doesn't only sign for one year. I think they've also gotten a sense that he realizes it's easier on his body if he's in the Eastern Conference. And so we're kind of sitting here and trying to knock everything down based on that. Now, I think, you know, Colorado, we've talked about, I think they're looking for offense. I could see them making a pitch. I think he wanted, I think he was interested in Dallas. I think they prefer to go defense. Um, and they don't have a lot of cap room. I know we talked to Toronto. It doesn't seem like the best way for Toronto to spend whatever flexibility they have. I know there's some people who suspect Vegas, again, Western travel. So I keep coming back to Florida and Detroit and Buffalo. And I know there's some people who suspect the Islanders simply because there's a cloud of secrecy on this. The secrecy king is Lou Lamorello and Kane is exactly the kind of player the Islanders have been looking for. But the Islanders don't look like they can win right now. So what does Kane think about that? You know, uh, Jeff, to me, I do think he's legitimately thought about Buffalo. I do think he's legitimately thought about Detroit. To me, the best fit is Florida. But the question is, what can they do contract-wise? They're right at the cap. And the other thing about the Panthers is there's a real suspicion that they want to keep as much flexibility as possible to see what they can do in the summer. You know, they're they're trying to sign Montour. They're trying to sign Forsling. You know, Reinhardt's having a big year. But... Ever since they made the big trade last year for Kachuk, people think that Zito, he's always got something he's considering. And look, everybody believes he's big in on Kane here. Big. So they look at Zito as, I'm ready to, I'm ready to roll the dice. I'm ready to try something you aren't suspecting. There's a big fish in the pond. I've got my dinghy and my rod and I'm ready to go for it. <laughs> It's going to take more than a dinghy and a rod and a, and a worm on a hook to try to get Patrick Kane. He's something almost significant. My analogies are always terrible. Uh, it, it, but you know, the team suspect that Florida thinks that way. What's the biggest thing we can try to do? So, but when it comes to the Panthers again is, is Kane, like, it's probably going to mean then because next year you can do an over 35 deal with Kane. You can't do it this year. Even though he just turned 35, he turned 35 after June 30th, which is when the league calendar starts for the year. So I think that's the thing here. If Florida wants to do, if Florida's willing to ban and give him term, I think we're having a different conversation. But if they're only willing to do a one-year deal at a low number, I, 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 people are kind of curious to see how Kane's going to feel about that. Okay, Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, we talked about how this week would bring more clarity on the John Klingberg situation, and it has to some extent. Uh, John Klingberg placed on LTIR by the Maple Leafs. Elliot, what now? Well, I, I think one of the things here is that the Maple Leafs know they have a process they have to go through before declaring anything because they know that other teams um, are watching them like a hawk. 
you know, Toronto's use and uh, and other teams' use of LTIR too. Like there's there's no question that the whole idea of LTIR right now is a controversial topic, and and teams think that other teams manipulate it. And even though Kyle Dubas now is in Pittsburgh, his LTIR master manipulator, Brandon Pridham, remains in Toronto. And so everybody is watching this. Everybody. Is this going to give Toronto the help they need? So I don't think they can immediately... Like the, the whole thing with Matt Murray was they went through a whole process in the offseason proving to the league that Murray's injuries... Um, weren't going to allow him to play. And the surgery he was going to get wasn't going to allow him to play. And finally, the league signed off on it, and Murray's on LTIR. So right now, that's what they're going through. They're going through the whole process of, okay, he's not having surgery yet. He's going to rehab. and they're And I think they're going to just say, you're not going to be able to declare anything right now. You're going to have to wait and prove that he can't play. Now, do I think ultimately he ends up being shut down? Yes, I, I think there's a better than 50% chance that happens. But I think the league is going to force them to go through stage by stage by stage by stage until they get there. And we're just starting the process now. I mean, the guy played two weeks ago, right? So... There's nothing that happened in two weeks, like no serious injury on the ice that the league is going to let them say he's done. They're going to make him go through a process. Okay, and our process is this. Uh, quick pause, back with the Montana's Thought Line and more on 32 Thoughts Apart. Listen to the 32 Thoughts podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Elliot, time now for the Montana's Thought Line, Montana's Barbecue and Bar, Canada's home for barbecue. Try the ribs. 32 thoughts. Especially on American Thanksgiving. Try the ribs. 32 thoughts at sportsnet.ca is the email. 1-833-311-3232. Again, email 32 thoughts at sportsnet.ca. 1-833-311-3232. We've been getting some really good ones, and we'll put a couple of them together. Um, these two, Sam and Boston, Wyatt and Colorado, both have questions about the schedule. And Sam is trying to make that Jelly Dom name stick, by the way. If you're not familiar with that, check out the last podcast. So, uh, <laughs> after the Rangers recent week off, it technically wasn't their bye week. I started thinking about the structure of NHL schedules. Who makes the league schedule every year? Is it Gary Bettman, an algorithm, automated system, a combination of both? Or perhaps does each team get a say in how their schedule is set up? Also, um, Wyatt in Colorado mentions on Tuesday's radio show, you and I talked about scheduling conflicts that resulted in no games on Tuesday and Thursday this week. Well, Thursday was a Thanksgiving, the U.S. Thanksgiving, and the NHL is dark on that anyway. As part of the explanation, Jeff mentioned that the U.S. teams typically request home games during the week of U.S. Thanksgiving. That's true. I've always assumed that the league basically just tells teams where and when they will be playing after working through building conflicts and CBA requirements. How much say do the NHL teams get in making of the schedule? 
So there's a couple of different questions in there. How is it made and how much say do the teams have, Elliot? Well, why don't you start by talking about this week? Because you talked a little bit about it, so you should start. So this week was a unique one. So the big one, I mean, Thursday, not so much because the NHL is dark on U.S. Thanksgiving. But the situation for Tuesday was a unique one and a number of different things conspired quote unquote, against the NHL or against, you know, uh, against fans, I suppose, who wanted to uh, watch hockey games. So the way it worked was there were only three buildings that were available to host games on Tuesday, um, Vancouver, Calgary, and Arizona. And as I mentioned on the radio, Canadian teams usually get sent to the United States on Thanksgiving week for Thanksgiving Eve and Black Friday games because that's when American teams request games. Um, And Arizona didn't want to play back-to-back games Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, 12 teams playing Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, so you couldn't schedule a Tuesday or that would mean four games in five nights. Elliot, and you're a CBA expert. I know before you tuck yourself in every night, you read the CBA and you know that is a no-fly zone. And also the four teams who went to Sweden were not available. That's why there were no games on Tuesday. That's good stuff. You did a lot of work here. Just a unique circumstance. That's all the Tuesday was. I know it's kind of a bummer because fans like, well, do I have to talk to my family today? Really? Thanks, NHL. But that was just a scheduling quirk but do you want to go over the do you want to go over how tough a job steve hatsapetros has with the nhl and all of his scheduling grids and uh, and requests for dates and the like well basically what happens is the league a long time out from when the schedule gets released which is usually around the end of june beginning of july the league will ask the teams for dates let us know when your buildings are available and if there's any special requests that you have. And um, that's basically what it comes down to. You submit a list of dates that your building is available and the league will work around and get you as, as much as they possibly can. Now, there are some teams that absolutely make requests. You know, um, the Canucks used to go to the league. I, they might still do. I haven't asked in a while. But they used to go to the league with a plan that their sleep doctor used to set for them and say, all right, um, this is the optimal schedule we have based on where we are. And they would try to get it. They wouldn't always be successful, but they would state their case. Um, There are some teams, especially a lot of the U.S. teams where – Three levels of football really matter. High school football, college football, and the NFL. We know the NFL is king right now. It's unbeatable. But if you have big nights for um, high school football and um, and college football, they would ask for as many home games as possible in the second half of the year. They did not want, because that's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They wanted as few games to deal with those te- those leagues as possible. And so that absolutely happened. There was a team, and they and they said you can, uh, you can use the example, but we don't want you to name who we are. And I said fine. They said that they had a big night in their community that was a Bible study night. And I will say this: this was about fifteen years ago, and they always said to me, um, and so I, I didn't even check if that's still the case. But I remember them telling me once that locally in their market. 
There was a, a certain night of the week. Their research did. There was a lot of Bible study among their fan base, and they didn't like home games on that day. So they would ask the league, can we not have home games on that day? So there are things like that that come up all the time. However, what the league will tell you is there are fewer and fewer available nights every year. Teams are just packing these buildings, especially post-COVID. You can have, maybe you have an NHL team, maybe you have an NBA team, um, you, you know, you have concerts and, so, and some of these buildings are the only venues in their cities where you can host big concerts. So, you know, there are teams who say there's less, less flexibility than ever. I've asked the league about that. And the one thing the league will say back is there's less flexibility than ever for a reason, because teams are booking their buildings and there's less dates for us to make the schedule work. So it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. You know, nobody's ever happy, um, but it's a challenge, no question. Thanks to both of you gentlemen for those um, similar yet a little bit different questions about the schedule. Uh, Greg from Fort Francis, Ontario, question for either of you. Are the teams compensated when they travel and play two games in the Global Series or even for the Heritage Classic games? The teams are not generating revenue from playing at their home rink as well as the increased travel costs to Europe. Does the NHL compensate the team for these events? I think it's great to showcase the game and the NHL in these events, but at the end of the day, the teams are a business and money talks. Thanks, Greg from Fort Francis. Well, Greg, it is a great question. And for example, if you are the home team in a global series game, you get bought out of a home gate. You notice who was not a home team in either game? The Toronto, Toronto. Maple Leafs. <laughs> because then the, the league would have to buy the Maple Leafs out of a yeah. home gate. Yeah. So the teams that they played, and they played Minnesota and they played Detroit, those teams, the league says, okay, on average, you make X for a home game. We're going to cut you a check for that amount of money. And now we're in control. And, you know, costs, you know, costs are part of the overall salary cap management. The cap is revenue minus costs, right? So the players pay 50% of those costs uh, that, you know, to take overseas. Unless now I should say, I don't know if like, for example, the promoter who, who puts on the global series games or whoever it is, I don't know if they pay the cost for that. Let me qualify this because I'm, I'm flying blind on answering that question. Mm. But I, I do know that generally costs are split 50-50. So I hope that's the answer to your question because that's what I could tell you. For the for the players themselves, outside of the teams, um, when it comes to you the get You get like, per diem. Well, that you, uh, but for, like, for things like Witcher Classic or Heritage, I, I don't think they get anything extra at all. But I, I do wonder about... Things like global series, you know, going to Sweden, going to Australia, if they do, I don't know, like an, an enhanced per diem for something like that. You that's know, that's what a good I'm, question. I, that, I don't know the I, answer to that that's, one. That's, I'm just throwing it out there because I've always wondered about it. If for something that's sort of above and beyond, if you get an enhanced per diem, I don't know the answer to that. It's you get to appear on a Swedish talk show in an undershirt. <laughs> that is your bonus. <laughs> Uh, well, women pinch your muscles. Well, women right. pinch your muscles. Let's not forget about that as well. Um, here's an interesting one. Alex from Tawasson. We're going to get to a couple of voicemails, but first this one. Alex from Tawasson. Hey, gents. What happens if a coach is fired with years remaining on his contract and the same team 
wants to bring him back. For instance, if the Oilers had a new GM that came in for next season and the new GM wanted Jay Woodcroft Geez, Jeez, I wonder why this question came up today. Would the coach be forced back behind the bench as he is still under contract with that team? Shades of Harold Ballard and Roger Nilsson in the 70s, Elliot Friedman. I know why this question came up today because I had people sending me this DM on, on Wednesday night as the Oilers were losing. I don't know the answer to that question. Now, for example, there are coaches who um, they get fired by a team and the team says, you still got to scout for us. Like if we want to want you to put together a report on someone, you've got to do it. But generally there's a, you know, you can't force them to do work that they're not contractually obligated to do. I have only, I have never heard of this occurring as a matter of fact, I only heard it about it happening on one occasion. And I actually forgot to ask Ken Hitchcock about this. When he was fired as the head coach in Dallas, um, there was someone at the World Championships, and this was before I was doing like insider duties, but at the World Championships, the rumor was that Dallas was going to consider bringing him back. And obviously it didn't happen. Nothing ever occurred for it. But I, I've never heard of this occurring before. It is a really interesting question. My theory would be that if they wanted to bring him back and the coach agreed, it would probably be the same contract. But I don't know that for sure. Um, but it's a great, it's a great question. And actually, I, I was reading this week. Usually in these contracts, there's something called offset language which means that if a coach is fired and another team hires them or we put them on TV, the team saves the money based on what the other team or we pay them. Like, for example, if, say, I don't know, pick a coach gets fired this week and we say, come on Hockey Night in Canada and we pay them $10,000 to work one Saturday night, the team saves $10,000. Well, last week in college football, a guy named Jimbo Fisher got fired as the coach at Texas A&M, and he's going to walk away with $76 million. And the reports are that there's no offset language in that Ooh. contract. Ooh. So he'll, he'll make his money plus whatever he gets next. Texas A&M should be looking for some new lawyers because <laughs> I think their current lawyer is Lionel Hutz. <laughs> there's the truth and then the truth. But there's <laughs> the truth and the truth. That's good. Love that line. Love that line. Now the NHL has stepped in before when teams try to quote unquote steal another coach for cheap, right? Like a coach gets uh, fired. That, ha- has, that two, has happened two, before. Two years remaining on a deal, and another team steps in and says, Hey, I can get this guy for $800,000. For $1. For $1, because you're still getting paid from the other team. The NHL will step in and say, Hold on a second here. Let's negotiate and, and work on something appropriate here. So you're essentially not stealing a coach for cheap and having another team pay for it. Yes, there is a formula. A market value formula. I think that gets bent in some directions here and there, yeah. but there generally is a quote unquote market value formula. Okay. Yes. Let's get a couple of voicemails here to wrap up the Montana's thought line. First, we go to Quad Cities and Kyle. I was listening to you guys talk about the Devils and Rangers game the other night and about how those two teams don't like each other and how it's really stemmed from the 
playoffs a year ago, and I've been thinking for a while, it just seems like the NHL's rivalries have been kind of dumbed down a little bit and lacking some muster. It seems like we need a little more maybe nastiness to the games. And by nastiness, I'm not talking about goonery or anything like that. It's just more trash talk and um, hard body checking and that kind of thing. So I was just wondering what you guys think about the current state of rivalries in the NHL. Do you think they're fine the way they are, or do you think the NHL needs to kind of promote them a little bit more? And if in that regard you think they do, what you think the league could try to do uh, in terms of getting rivalries uh, back important uh, as they used to be when I was growing up back in the 90s. So anyway, thanks again, guys. Appreciate all that you do. It, it's a great question, and I think I feel a lot the same way. Like, like a lot of the hate is gone from the regular season. There's no question about it. But what builds up hate? Playoff rivalries. And, you know, like I said, I think, I think the Rangers and the Devils, they really hate each other, and I think that's awesome. I think the Avalanche and the Golden Knights, I, I think they really hate each other, and that's awesome. Like, it'll, nev- it'll never be like the 80s where you had bench-clearing brawls or the 70s, like, bench-clearing brawls. Um, and, you know, the other thing now, too, Jeff, is simply that, you know, fighting isn't as big a part of the game anymore. It's up this year, and it's interesting to see it, but it's still not anywhere near the way it was 30 or 40 years ago. So I think you have to find your hate in other ways. And you know what, Jeff? You know, we talked about Shesterkin popping off about the Devils. Like, did they win the it's cup? Great. No, it's like great. big freaking deal. Maybe that's the way that the that the league is going to change is that players aren't going to bother to hide their feelings anymore and they're just going to say what's on their mind. And, and that'll be the way that the rivalries perk up with the talk. Like, like you look at the NBA, there, there was a wild scene on Wednesday night with Chris Paul and a referee named Scott Foster. Like, I, I cannot believe the NBA allows that to continue, that uh, Scott Foster clearly hates Chris Paul and continually throws him out of games. And, uh, like, his Paul's record in games when Foster referees, it's... It's like 500 points worse than his career record as a player. It's it's really something. And, you know, he threw them out of the game on, on Wednesday night. And and you have the best take on this uh, of anybody I've ever heard, and that is that in uh, south of the border, like, it's the whole world is just a stage, and everybody accepts that. And But I, I can't believe that the NBA allows that. But that's the way the league functions on the drama. Like the NBA of all the leagues has the most drama and some of it is crazy, but it builds up the interest. And I don't know if we'll ever get there. I just don't know if that's possible. But I think we all feel if, you know, people just dropped their guard a little bit and gave us a little more into what they were feeling, it would be nice and spicy. And maybe that's the way you build up the rivalries. Two things need to happen for it to really, really hit. One, and you already mentioned this earlier, playoffs between two teams. And two, geography. Three is the bonus, and that is someone doing something dumb. But if you have the first two, you have the beginnings of it. Like when Seattle came in 
what were one of the what was one of the selling points for Seattle? Instant rivalry with Vancouver. Right. And one day somewhere down the road, who knows, maybe even this season. Maybe we'll they're going to the play for the Rain Cloud Cup. <laughs> okay. The stereotype cup? Oh, well done, Elliot. Okay. <laughs> um, whether it's Buffalo, Toronto, maybe, and this might even be a stretch, but nonetheless, I'll throw it out there. And at times it's been spicy, Minnesota and Winnipeg. Playoffs, geography, someone does something dumb. Boom. We have a spicy rivalry between teams. Last voicemail goes to Tim. Oh, just mentioned Winnipeg. Tim and the Peg. Just wanted to hear your thoughts. Uh... Um, uh, I've been noticing that Connor McDavid seems to not be tucking in his jersey anymore. Uh, just wondering if uh, this is something you guys picked up on. Um, uh, I just feel like he was always a big tuck-in guy. And, uh, yeah, just noticed that uh, he's going no tuck lately. Anyways, uh, that's all. Just uh, just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, thanks. Uh, love the pod. Uh, take care, guys. Bye. Tim, thank you. Do you have a thought on jersey tuck? Uh, you know what? I'm just I'm just doing a search right now. Technically, the Jersey Tuck violation is still on the books. They could still call. Yes, it. which has now, never been called. Like I uh, I, I they, remember. They, they, no, no, no. I'll tell you a funny story. It has been called. Uh, it was like this is like ten years ago. Alexander Svitov got called on a Jersey Tuck. I remember everybody went crazy. Like NHL How do players, you like, this remember is ridiculous. This? Trust me, I love stuff like this. NHL was, I remember Malkin went nuts about it, and rightfully so. I think a lot of players did. Like, how can you call this? This is ridiculous. Like, the NHL has a sort of uniform policy, and they want everything to be, you know, all the equipment to be covered up, et cetera. My own personal theory is they want the uniform, they want the jersey out for one day. Uh, they can use the jerseys as billboards to sell advertising. Call me a conspiracy theorist, Elliot, but that's kind of what I think here. Um, but they, they can call it, but what they'll do is they'll ask the player to untuck the Jersey. And then if the player doesn't, then they'll call it. It won't be an automatic call. That's the way it would work. But yeah, Alexander Svitov was called. So I was in a dressing room Hmm. and I saw the poster. This is the way we expect you to be dressed. And I was like, ah, that's an interesting article or interesting thing. I can write something about this. So I did. I wrote a, a piece about this is how it's going to look. And Glenn Healy, who was still working with me at the time, called me like 10 minutes after the article appeared and said, this is the dumbest thing you've ever written. They are <laughs> never going to call this. And I said, they're telling me they're going to take it seriously, Glenn. I don't know. He goes, you will never see a call. And until today, when you just told me this, I never saw a call. He was right. But you know what it did? What's that? I am contracted to write one blog a week. That one allowed me to fulfill my contractual, <laughs> contractual obligations. So you know Very what? Good. I'm looking at this right now. He, okay. I am looking at some recent highlights from McDavid. And Tim, you are right. He does not have the tuck. His jersey is down. And you want to know what my theory on that is? Try anything in a slump? That's one good theory, but it's not mine. Okay. I wonder if he's wearing something to protect whatever injury he's got. Mm. Ooh, I like the way you think, Elliot. You're snuggling up on, on my side of the grassy knoll now. I like that. 
Interesting. Uh, Tim in Winnipeg, thanks for the call. Kyle in Quad Cities, thanks for the call as well. Uh, that was the Montana's Thought Line, Montana's Barbecue and Bar, Canada's home for barbecue. Back to wrap up the pod in moments. Before we get back to our regular programming, we need to talk about our partner, Montana's Barbecue and Bar. Taco about really that's right with five dollar tacos available every tuesday satisfy any taco craving when you try their seasoned grilled chicken mexi spiced beef kapow shrimp or mixed veggie options mix and match to try them all or add one to the side of your favorite montana's item five dollar tacos at montana's barbecue and bar every tuesday some conditions apply visit montana's.ca for details Okay, Elliot, um, considering this week, well, we just had Tim in Winnipeg uh, ask about the Jersey Tuck situation with Connor McDavid, and you put forth a certain theory. Some might call it a conspiracy theory. I've talked about my theory that one day the NHL would like to use as much of the jersey as possible to sell advertising, and that's why that they want that uniform look and that uniform feel. Um, what about, as we talk about jerseys, on the 60th anniversary week of one of the great conspiracies of all time, who shot JFK, you have a conspiracy theory on the leak of the Winter Classic jerseys. By the way, have you watched that new documentary on the JFK shooting? I've listened to the new Sold Out O'Brien, Rob Reiner uh, um, uh, podcast about it. I just started episode three this afternoon. And I hear it's quite good. It's, it's really, really well done. It's excellent. Yeah, it's really well done. I, I think Rob Reiner has generally gone insane, but this sounds like it's it's quite <laughs> it's well done. It, it, it's really it, well it's done. quite good. And, and Solidad I, 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 fascinating, fascinating topic. Solidad um, O'Brien is fantastic too. On this one, there's no question in my mind. People think, oh, this accidentally got leaked. No. It's leaked on purpose. And I actually think it's smart. Build up the buzz. Build up the buzz. I will say this. A friend of mine who used to be a fan of the Seattle Supersonics didn't like that it was a Utah Jazz player who wore it uh, because I forgot the Jazz and the Supersonics were big rivals. Gary Payton and Sean Kemp against Carl Malone and John Stockton. And he didn't like that. But I, you know what I thought was very interesting about that whole scenario, Jeff? Who owns the Utah Jazz? <laughs> uh, Ryan Smith. Sir. I don't think these things happen by accident. <laughs> you're all this is, now. You're totally going JFK I style. Know. Was it the you're the rubbing Soviets, off the, on me? The Cubans in a long way. Uh, or um, the the mafia? Uh, who who was it after all, Elliot? You're you're really rubbing off on me in a bad way. But it was AEW, um, which I, I know a lot of young fans think is really cool. So uh, there, this is not an accident. This is not an accidental leak. They do it on purpose. I, I will say this. I was worried about the Vegas jersey, but when I saw the actual reveal, the official one, I liked it a lot more. I still think the Seattle one is awesome. I know. I you want Seattle, the strings. Yeah. Well, I do want the strings, but then technically, you know, by and large, they did not wear strings. I just think strings give it a real nice old, timey feel but i think they i think they look really good they look fantastic the seattle ones look so good they look so good um congratulations seattle you nailed it on this one 
then they've nailed most things though so no surprise there okay uh on that we'll wrap up and thank you for listening once again sharing your time with us we always appreciate it um that's it for us here on behalf of elliot and old dom signing off enjoy your weekend of hockey you'll hear from us again on monday adjourn Adjourn.